The following is a recording of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, visit gpts.edu. I'm going to read from Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Thank you, Joe. This is the word of God. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making of books, there is no end. And much study is weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Lord, you've given us your holy word. Now apply it to our hearts by your spirit, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. One of the recurring themes of the book of Ecclesiastes, in fact, in a sense, the central theme of the book of Ecclesiastes is the looming nature of death. You could take any chapter in this book, any passage from any chapter in this book, and, and in a sense, that's what governs its teaching. Death is almost like a character in the book, like that famous film, The Seventh Seal, where death is actually playing a chess match with an individual in the Middle Ages. Death is a character. Death has a seat at the table in every uh, one of the sermons of this book. But like that movie, death, as we see in Ecclesiastes, is, is not defeated by the individual. The preacher here knows that death, in the end, will finally take every man. He's not looking forward to the question of Christ's return and what might happen to those who are alive and remain at Christ's return. He's looking at the natural course of things and recognizing that in the natural course of things, in this created order in which we live, Death is a character at the table. Death is seated there. Death is 
looming over everything. You remember the words of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, which summarize this well and which really lead into Ecclesiastes 12. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same as one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. And you remember, of course, that phrase, vanity of vanity, which is repeated here in verse 8, which really would be better translated as merest breath, that there isn't anything solid that we can grab a hold of that somehow undoes that reality. You think you're going to build a legacy for yourself? Well, what you see if you pay attention is that two generations from now, people will know hardly anything about you. You think that somehow your wisdom is going to lead you to prominence? Well, it may do that for a time, but there's no guarantee. In fact, those kinds of straight lines that we like to draw between cause and effect often become very crooked when looked at under the clear light of day. Death looms over all things. And so the question in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 is what are we to derive from that? What lessons should we learn? This is a summary chapter, really, of the teaching of the whole book. And he comes back to some of the major themes that he's already addressed, but he focuses in particular on three basic realities, three basic lessons that we're to learn, uh, given the fact that we can't ignore death. And by the way, I'll just say this parenthetically, uh, Ecclesiastes is really meant to be a, a, a kind of dose of strong medicine for all of us. So most people that you meet, and you'll be tempted in this way yourself, do everything they can to ignore the reality of death. They don't like to talk about it. They don't like to be present where it is. We try in all kinds of ways to keep death at arm's length. We don't want to think about it ourselves, and we don't want to be confronted with it in other people. There are all kinds of distractions that our world presents to us in order to ignore this reality. But one of, one of the things that Ecclesiastes won't let us escape from is this reality of death. So what should we learn from this? Well, as I said, I think there are three major lessons that he gives in this chapter, and they summarize really the teaching of the book. The first is this, remember your creator while you can. Remember your creator while you can. You'll see in the first eight verses of this that um, what the writer does is he gives a number of euphemisms, a number of illustrations to describe what it's like in the last days of death. What you and I, apart from the supernatural intervention of the Lord, what you and I have to look forward to at the end, what we will face for ourselves and what we will likely watch others face as well. Um, he, he speaks in verse one of no pleasure being left in life, where you reach the end of days and you say to yourself, it, it, there, is, there is nothing left for me that brings me joy or pleasure. Life is constant struggle and constant pain. Well, that is, that is in a sense, the normal way in which life ends. He says, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. He gives another analogy in verse 2, and the analogy here is, is the analogy of the weather changing. He envisions a day when there is, when there is great sun and, and, and great brightness, and then a day when all of that disappears. It's as if there's just darkness and nothing is left of the light of the sun 
or the light of the moon. It's the kind of thing that happens on these occasional cloudy days where you think it must be about to rain because there's no real light in the sky. It's gloomy. You, you have trouble getting out of bed. Everything, everything is difficult. He says there will be days to come that where your life will turn into that, where it will just be a, a slog. It will be, it will be difficult. Uh, the, the, the joy of the past will no longer be there. He gives another example as if you haven't gotten the picture already in verse 3. It's the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent. Now, the imagery here might be a little unusual to us. It's helpful to go back into the time period in which this was written. What he's speaking of is he's speaking of this, this great house that has household servants working in it. Only you know what happens Uh, In the latter days of a great house, those servants who have been with the family, maybe even for generations, are themselves a shadow of what they once were. You look at the house and and it's, it's, it's no longer grand. It's no longer glorious. You look at the staff members, they can barely move around. That's the picture that he's giving of life. There will be a time when your life is like that, when all the things that that formerly brought you brought you glory and, 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 and appeared to be vibrant and alive will no longer be there. And we've all seen this in certain people in our lives. We, we've seen people age. We've, we've looked at them and we, we, can, we can't even really even imagine what it was like for them 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, we just see them as, as someone dying. He gives another example in verse four. It's the example of a deserted town. You've driven perhaps across the state or across the country and you, you drive through these towns and your mind sort of pictures what it might have been like several generations before. You see the, you see the store that's now boarded up and you think to yourself, there was a time in the last century perhaps, there was a time when, when this was bustling and people were generating memories and this is where Whole families grew up and 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 met their spouses and 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 had all kinds of important events take place. And now you pass through and there's there's nothing to see. That's what he describes in verse four. The doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. Anything that might have made that a living town in the past. It is long gone, and you can perhaps imagine it, but you can't see it. Maybe you'll see one or two people on the street sort of hanging on, but the town itself is dead. He says, when you see that kind of dead town, when you imagine that in your mind's eye, that's going to be you. When you see this house, this grand house, where now it's just inhabited by old staff members who no longer have anything to do, that's going to be you. When you see the weather turning gray outside, there are going to be days to come, likely, that will be that way for you. He gives more examples. In verse 5, there's a strange analogy that's used, uh, but he talks about the almond tree and the grasshopper 
dragging itself along. The imagery here in verse 5 is a time when all desire, and particularly in verse 5, he's probably talking about sexual desire because of the, the, the kinds of uses that were put for the almond tree in that, in that situation. But, but where all desire is gone, where we might say someone's lost the joy of life, there's nothing, there's nothing that life has to offer that is of particular interest to them. They're sort of hanging on. And he says, that's, that's another picture to look at. And then if, in case you didn't get it, in case you didn't get what it meant to say, and desire fails, and the silver cord is about to be snapped, and the pitcher is shattered as someone is holding it and drops to the ground, and the pitcher itself breaks, as if you didn't understand the imagery. Here it is in verse 7. The dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. In case you didn't know what he was talking about, in case the imagery passed by, he's talking about the day of death. He's talking about what happens to all people in the normal course of creation when they lose their strength, when they lose any kind of joy in life when all the pleasure is gone. It's been sucked dry. You're out of time, out of years. You go back to dust and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So what is he commanding? Well, it's there in verse one. In light of this, and you don't like to think about it and you don't like to dwell upon it and you can't even imagine it right now. But in light of this, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Think of all the opportunities you have right now to give praise to God, to serve God with the years that he's given you, to remember that he's in charge, that he's in control, that he's the giver of every good and perfect gift, that he's the source and wellspring of your life, that he's the only hope for those with whom you have contact. Remember your creator in the day of your youth. Everyone you'll ever meet who reaches the stage described here in these verses will tell you the same thing. They'll say it went by quickly. It seems like only yesterday. I, I can't even believe. Sometimes they'll say something like, "Something like I, I feel the same way in my mind. I just, I just, I, I realize the years are gone, and I look back, and it, and it happened in a flash." And so, what does the writer of Ecclesiastes tell you? Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. This is the time that God's given you. It will go by quickly, and there will be a time when you will look back and long for the energy and the opportunities and the strength that you have right now. And you have it for right now. You may not have it tomorrow. You may not have it in a month, but you have it right now. And so remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come. Well, the, the overarching reality is what he's repeated over and over again, what he's hit us over the head with in this book. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. It does move quickly. 
You can't hang on to it. You can't stop time. You can't slow down the process that has been set in motion by the day of your birth. There will be a day of your death. And that day will come very soon. Remember your creator while you can. Secondly, the second conclusion that he draws, and this is given after a description of the preacher himself in verses 9 and 10. The preacher not only taught people things, but he wrote things down and he did them with great care. We were introduced to this preacher in chapter 1, Koaleth, probably uh, most likely it appears to be Solomon himself. But here he's not referred to by his proper name. He's referred to as this preacher. And, and after the preacher is described as having written these things down for our instruction, for our knowledge, that we might grow in wisdom, in verses 11 and 12, we're given the second major lesson. Remember your creator. And also in light of death, death is right there. In light of death, he says, focus on wisdom and not the wearying trivia of life. Now, how does he put this? Um, Well, he begins by talking about the value of wisdom, the importance of wisdom in verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Commentators argue uh, over the meaning of this term at the end of verse 11, this one shepherd. Is it, is it referring, in fact, to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, in an ultimate sense, I think we could say it is. Uh, whether or not that's precisely what the preacher had in mind isn't clear, but he is speaking of the Lord. And you remember in the 23rd Psalm, uh, the way in which the Lord is referred to as our shepherd. And here he's, he's describing the fact that wisdom ultimately comes from that one source, comes from him, and is like a nail that's firmly fixed. It actually does stand firm. There's a contrast in verse 11 between wisdom, which is a nail firmly fixed, and everything else, which is ephemeral and passing vanity of vanities, says the preacher. And so what's the implication of that? The implication is focus on wisdom. Focus on what actually is going to matter. And, you know, he's talked about this throughout the book. While the writer of Ecclesiastes, on the one hand, is clear that wisdom doesn't guarantee anything, that even if you act wisely, you may well be forgotten. People may ignore your advice. Uh, That's possible. But nonetheless, he always says, even at the end of that, wisdom is better than folly. Pursue wisdom. And that's the same thing he's saying here. This won't change the fact that you're going to die. But if there's one thing you should sell yourself out for, if there's one thing you should give everything for, it's to grow in wisdom. It's to gain wisdom. It doesn't change the basic equation. But nonetheless, it is the thing of greatest value. Now, he contrasts this in verse 12 with all kinds of other things that get added to wisdom. He speaks about beware of anything beyond these, of the making of books, there can be no end. Now, let me put it to you this way, because I think this is what the writer has in mind. Life will put in front of you an endless array of things 
that you can devote yourself to, that you can fill your mind with. There are all kinds of, I mean, there is an endless supply of ephemera, of trivia. There's an endless supply of things that might be interesting for a moment, but are ultimately of no lasting value. You, You can distract yourself to death. And, and, and our society, if there's one thing we've majored in, it's in giving ourselves endless distractions, intellectual distractions, distractions that simply appeal to our base pleasures, all kinds of things, e- even distractions that, that might ultimately have some minor value, but, but very little compared to wisdom. There are all kinds of things you can devote yourself to all kinds of areas of study, all kinds of passions and hobbies and interests that you can devote yourself to. But he says, beware of anything beyond wisdom. Uh, we, I could give you example after example of academic papers. He actually mentions of the making of books. There is no end. I, I was uh, scrolling through a few of them uh, in preparation for this study. I found one that was that was some that had to do with something that my brother was working on, and, it, and it, it, this is the title of it: the precultural paradigm of consensus in submodern discourse. Well, that's all well and good. Maybe you can make a career out of that, but the reality is, it's ultimately ephemeral. It's not true wisdom. We can spend our life life chasing trends, uh, trying to find out what the latest ideas are. No, but the writer says, get wisdom. Wisdom is what you're after. It's not a guarantee of success, of fame, or of acclamation. Sometimes it's pitched that way. That's not the case. He's told us that in Ecclesiastes 9. Remember that story of the the wise man who saved the city? And then as soon as the city was saved, he was forgotten. But what does the writer say at the end of that? Nobody remembered this poor man, but wisdom is better than strength. So that's the second application here. Remember your creator while you can. There will come a day when you will not have the opportunities to serve the Lord, to give praise to the Lord, to work for the Lord that you have now. We live in a fallen world. We have all kinds of struggles and difficulties. But, but this is the opportunity that God's given you. And then second, focus on wisdom, not the wearying trivia of life. Now, if you were to ask the question, how do I get wisdom? If that's what I'm supposed to pursue, if that's like the nail that's hammered into the wood, how do I get it? Well, fortunately, the Bible tells us exactly how to pursue wisdom. You know, in Job 28, there's this whole discourse on where wisdom can be found. He talks about the fact that we dive deep into the earth to to bring out precious stones and precious metals. But where can wisdom be found? No matter how deep you go, you're not going to find wisdom. No matter how high you go, you're not going to find wisdom. The deep doesn't know where wisdom is. Death doesn't have an answer for wisdom. Then at the end of Job 28, what's the conclusion? The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. You want to know how to actually do something that counts? 
how to actually make the most of whatever years the Lord gives you, many or few, and whatever talents you might have, many or few. Pursue wisdom. Fear the Lord. Shun evil. That's the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs says the same thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Put fools, despise wisdom and instruction. What does the book of James tell us? If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. In all you're getting, the Proverbs say, get wisdom. Turn everything else in for wisdom. The scriptures, of course, are the path of wisdom. We read in Psalm 119, I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. Study and meditate on the law of God. That's the way to be blessed in this life. That's the way to grow in wisdom. Study God's word. Ask God. Fear him. Shun evil. Turn away from every wicked way. The other thing that the Bible teaches us very clearly is that in our pursuit of wisdom, what we have to do is we have to look to the embodiment of wisdom, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting. There's a word that's used four times in the New Testament. It's often translated as transformed. And twice it's used in the Gospels to describe the transfiguration of Jesus that we see on the Mount of Transfiguration. Once it's used in Romans 12, 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But the fourth place it's used is in 2 Corinthians 3. And here's how Paul puts it, puts this transformation. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. As we meditate and reflect and commune with our Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself the wisdom of God, well, the Lord uses that to transform us into his image, to cause us to grow in conformity to him and therefore to grow in wisdom. Well, lastly, in verses 13 and 14, the preacher concludes his discussion. And he says this, because death is near, fear God and remember his coming judgment. If death is a character who is always present in our lives, then we'll live differently. We know that we will face God as our judge. This is axiomatic. This is an unbroken truth of life. All human beings, whatever concerns they have, whatever theology they have, all human beings will face God as their judge one day. The Bible is clear about that. And, and ultimately, this is the great threat. This has to be the great concern of our lives. If you looked at the previous 12 verses, what he does is he gives clarity about how we're to spend our days now, how we're to make the best use of the time that's given to us. So, so maximize your time for God now and, and go after wisdom and not ephemeral things now. But in 13 and 14, there's almost an increased urgency. Because now he's not just telling us how to maximize our lives. 
but he's telling us what we need to think about as we face death. The good use of our time, as important as that is, or the fleeting nature of our days, as fleeting, as quickly fleeting as they are, are are insignificant in comparison to the impending judgment from a God who is our creator, who knows all things, and is holy and without sin. When we face him after death, which we will, how is it that we will stand before him in light of our sinfulness? To contemplate who God is as judge is to contemplate his perfection, his holiness. And then, and then as we look back at ourselves, having thought about that, we see our own per- imperfection and our separation from him. Now, we know from the scriptures, the only solution to this, the only solution to this reality of facing a holy God in judgment, which we will all do, is the propitiating work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Paul puts it this way in Romans 3, you know these words well, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The first thing we realize when we trust in Jesus, who is the embodiment of wisdom, who is the one who conquered death itself, is that he's the only way in which we can stand before our perfect judge. We know when we read verses 13 and 14 and, and, and think about it in light of the rest of Scripture, we know that our only hope is in the grace of God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Well, how does that help us then face life now? Well, we can face death with confidence and certainty only in Christ. And we look at our life now and what we're called to do and making the best of the few short years that are given to us. And we realize that same grace that brings us to faith in Christ, that same grace that is poured out in Christ, that enables us to contemplate facing a holy judge. That same grace is the grace that gives us the strength to do that which God has called us to today. So in the end, in the book of Ecclesiastes, at the end of the matter, when everything is considered, when death is looked face to face, eye to eye, head on, what we realize is our only hope in life and in death is exactly what we confess to be our only hope, that I'm not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's really what the preacher is pointing us to, that reality. Anything else that we might hope to cling to, we're we're just kidding ourselves. We're not facing up to to the realities of life. We're just just distracting ourselves with something that can't can't, can't in any way Uh, help us on that day of judgment. It offers no hope in light of death, offers no meaning and purpose or help in our time right now. 
know the only hope in life and in death is our faithful Savior. On that day when God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil, all that we have is the confidence that on that day we'll be vindicated, being found in Christ, not having a righteousness that is our own, uh, but one that is through faith in Him, a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, of course, our risen Savior, who on the cross defeated death once for all and defeated the fear of death for all those who are in him. Well, let's pray. Lord, we are mindful that these things are true. We've seen them. We see them played out right now among those whom we know. Father, make these realities clear to us. Make the hope of Christ precious in our sight. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, please visit gpts.edu.